welcome to the Cinematologist podcast. Uh, this is a repost episode that we are putting out of Simon Liang's Goodbye Dragon Inn, which is having a Blu-ray release on the uh, 23rd, which is a Monday, which is today when we're taping. So I don't know how long after we've taped that you'll be listening to this, but it's a film that we um, covered way, way back in the day, episode six of the podcast, in fact, in 2015. And it's one of our old school episodes, so it contains a live screening. And we discuss the the merits of cinema going and the auditorium experience. So it might sound like quite a bittersweet um, episode, but Neil's with me and he, he was the one who chose it. So Neil, why did you chose this one? And, uh, you know, do you remember why and why do you love it still so much? Uh, I chose it because I love it so much. <laughs> but I I chose it because it was a film that I'd recently seen and it sort of came out of my emergence as an academic and sort of reading more academic literature and as part of my kind of doctorate research, but then just more broadly. And it fulfilled that remit of why we started the podcast in the first place, which was share with each other a film that we loved and that we wanted the other one to share in and that we wanted our audience to share in and a film that might not necessarily be, yeah, a, a film that might not be that well known. And it was one of those great episodes where that intention was kind of really kind of met when we screened the film and the audience just really loved it. <laughs> and we had such a really wonderful conversation, which was bittersweet and a bit nostalgic, but really, really insightful and interesting. And yeah, it really kind of fulfilled the, the goal of showing it in the first place great so really interesting to see um, what our audience makes of of this trip into the past both in terms of the the film itself but our podcasting abilities let's uh, let, let's say back back in the day um the other thing i wanted to talk about so i'll just mention very quickly was our continued attempts to keep growing the podcast and and increasing the listenership. We know we have a great audience out there and we thank you for continuing to to listen and to to follow us and engage with us on on social media and on the email. And we know that our audience is invested in the show in a real way. But we are independent and unsponsored and we don't have advertisements. And with the consolidation of podcasting as an industry, with, with it being becoming more kind of mainstream and subject to, I think, the structures of traditional broadcasting mechanisms, let's say, and added to that the number of shows. Discoverability is always a problem, and we do want to grow the show and make it as available as possible. And I was also reading some articles the other day just about the way that algorithms work on social media And that the original kind of intention of the way that sharing takes place on social media was much more democratic, i.e. in a chronological way. And there was a sort of flatness to the way that social media posts went out and the way that they were received. But this is increasingly more along the lines of what the AI decides it thinks that the audience likes. So there's a kind of very much a narrowing of the sense of what actually gets shared compared to what actually gets seen. Now, I don't know how many of you use Facebook out there, but the um, the interface, I find it 
almost impossible to use and the way that the algorithms work in terms of creating the news feeds is almost redundant now for us in terms of in terms of sharing and because we're a sound medium instagram doesn't really suit our needs either so that kind of leaves twitter and retweeting and quote tweeting and also reviews that people can make on the podcatcher apps of their choice so we spent a lot of time building up our followings on social media but if the posts aren't shared they tend to get seen by the same people and when when posts are shared or quote tweeted then the algorithm picks up on that and puts them to the 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 top of people's streams so added to that reviews of course are always an invaluable way that the podcatcher apps actually put shows at the top of their lists so basically what i'm getting at is a request from us that if you do enjoy the show please consider just taking the time to retweet or quote tweet or mention or review on whatever networks it is that you you tend to use it really does help us an awful lot and it makes the the show which we think is a good show as discoverable to audiences out there as it can be if you want to join the patreon at two dollars fifty a month all bonus content included and our newsletter um please feel free to do that but but the retweeting and the and the quote tweeting i think is a really is a really big thing for us so thanks for taking that time we hope you enjoy this uh, this repost of Simon liang's goodbye dragon in Welcome to The Cinematologists with Dr. Neil Fox and Dr. Dario Linares. Dario, how are you doing? I'm not bad, not too bad. Um, been an interesting week. Saw a, saw a documentary on the uh, current state of higher education in, in the US and it kind of obviously pertains to what's going on over here called Ivory Tower. I watched that on Netflix last night, so that was interesting. Uh, what was um, well? Those uh, is that like a Netflix original documentary? Or? No, I don't think it is. It's from this oh, God. I forgot the name of the director now, but it's just, it was a CNN production, okay. and the guy had, had, had done something before on on. I think he'd done something on on um, finance or or economics or something like that on the institution. You know, obviously this is a this is a subject that's really important over here with the new government coming in and questions about you know tuition fees and and this yeah. kind of thing yeah. so and with us obviously working in this environment very very relevant Indeed. to me and you yeah yeah and what yeah what we're going to look at over the next the next few years sure so, have you seen anything else that's been no but we're going to see i'm going taking some of the regulars cinematologist regulars to see mad max fury road this yeah, evening I'm so, I'm so. i can't make that yeah i mean it's the only blockbuster i've really sort of taken an interest in after looking at the trailer so is that because you're a mad max fan yeah well i have been a, a mad max fan well the first two although actually the first two and a half like the first 45 minutes of of mad max beyond thunderdome is it's almost isn't... like the return of the jedi of the film, yeah it? it is actually yeah it's very much like that into like parody um yeah it does a little bit um but the, but great reviews for mad max fury road and, and and as you know i'm not the 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 blockbuster mad keen blockbuster fan of the of, of this group so it should be interesting to see what sound like what, i am you know well you i think you are slightly more than me I'm probably more tolerant yes yeah. okay um uh that's that's true and what about yourself you've been sort of ozuing all I week have haven't you ozuing again uh, an autumn afternoon which was his final film i watched that which was really Really sweet and much less cruel and very reflective, you know, very much a, a final film, even though I don't think he kind of knew it was going to be his final film. But there is a sense that 
he's looking back and sure. and, and, and looking back gentler uh, certainly than floating weeds and so that was that was lovely another beautiful color film and uh, yeah and i watched a, a big star documentary and uh, nothing can hurt me which was uh, interesting because i am kind of looking at writing a book on on music documentaries so um uh, and I'm a big fan of music documentaries and, and a big fan of Big Star. So that was, but that was one of those documentaries that kind of does all the same things that they all do now, technically. Mm. And I don't think it ever quite knew what it was. Re- the story it was really going to tell, whether it was going to tell the impact. And it's kind of interesting because they're very much a band that were beloved by critics and loved by musicians, but the public just kind of ignored them. Um, and it kind of hints at that, but never really gets into. Right. Which I thought would be really interesting is like the one of these bands, like these kind of films that are just. You know that are kind of on the top of these lists, and but but the general public wouldn't wouldn't sort of pay um, pay any attention to. So uh, it was it was good, um, but uh, yeah, not 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 up there at the top. Of, uh... Yeah, I mean it's funny with music documentaries. I suppose it's all documentaries that you know when they're when they're kind of in love with their subject or or they're sanctioned by the uh, by the people involved. Yeah. Then you know there's there's a real question about how in depth that they can actually go. Yeah, that, that was the sense in it. I mean, three of the band, the original lineup, are dead. Um, but obviously they had family and kind of friends and yeah you can tell that they there's there was mental health issues that were kind of skirted around one of the one of the guys in the band clearly the dominant force um and probably quite negative uh but it was kind of almost romanticized and skirted sure. around you know and kind of um creative genius kind of thing so there was interesting things i think that it um that it didn't didn't quite get to but uh i think if you're yeah if you're kind of curious that it's a good place to start so. and what was that called again that's called big star nothing can hurt me okay so. cool so what have we got coming up on today's podcast uh, today we're going to talk about goodbye dragon inn which was the last screening of what i'm calling series one of the cinematologist oh right okay uh, or is it season one or series one? season one <laughs> series one uh it's, it's the end of the first the yes. first block um, indeed uh, so we, we screened that last week and that was that was uh, a really, really interesting, fascinating screening. I've spent all week trying not to, trying to find different words to say other than interesting and fascinating because I realised that I say them a lot. Mm. Um, and I've just Profound. Really profound, <laughs> uh, yeah, insightful, um, yes, and carry a thesaurus, I think. So we're going to talk about that and we have uh, a great interview with uh, Dr. Sarah Atkinson from the University of Brighton, which I'm sure you'll tell us more about when we get to that. Uh, and we're going to talk about the cinematic experience. We kind of alluded to it there in terms of blockbusters and, you know, what what is the cinematic experience now and how do we feel about it? And um, Is it under threat? Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, one of those kind of times where we might kind of align ourselves again with, with kind of a much wider uh, debate that's kind of ongoing and very, very current. So that's the plan. Fantastic. So uh, let's listen to our live introduction to Goodbye Dragon Inn. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to our regulars and welcome to New Faces tonight, which is which is always great. Um, we just wanted to say thanks to everybody who supported the podcast. This is the last one of the term and you know it wouldn't really work if nobody turned up so we really appreciate you coming and and supporting us so that's that's great and tonight's film has been picked by neil so neil do you want to tell us what it is and why you picked it uh we are screening uh mingling size uh, 2003 film goodbye dragon inn and i picked it for a number of reasons Uh, it was a film that really affected me when i saw it and uh one of the first films i put on the initial list of cinematologists kind of screenings because I thought it was a film that would allow us to talk about, hopefully talk about kind of a lot of different 
uh, issues around kind of cinema at the moment and that, that we that we kind of talk about a lot in our everyday conversation. I th- yeah. thought it was a really good film for that. It's a film which, when I watched it, it really made me think about my cinephilia. You know, it really kind of sort of made me question my my nostalgia for certain types of films for a certain type of experience and it kind of reminded me that that's a conversation that should be constantly ongoing and I think what's interesting as well is teaching on a film degree you're constantly being challenged to um, to think about and be critical of your own cinephilia because you know I think there is often and we've talked about this before there's often the kind of uh, the danger that you kind of get very stuck that the way you do things and the way you know things sure. and the films that you that are formative for you are that that's the only way to do things and I think there's something about this film which really brings all those questions to the fore in such a beautiful and lyrical way and also because I wanted to show it because I think it's it's easily the most um, kind of I'd say difficult but you know the, the most different film we've, we've kind of screened yeah. it's very art house even though it's not it's, it's only sort of 80 minutes um, it's very slow mm. it's very kind of deliberate in, in, in what it's doing um, and I'm really curious to see what what our audience will, will 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 make of it in uh, in all those different ways. Yeah, excellent. So um, you've talked, you've alluded to it a little bit there, but the film definitely ref- references the experience of cinema and cinema as an environment and as a social function. So, in what ways could you set up for the audience why this film is an allegory for for the decline of cin- cinema, perhaps? Well, it's interesting because I think it's 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 an allegory for a decline of a certain type of cinema. It's it's. When I saw the film and then sort of read into it, realised that it was it was this text which scholars really kind of are really drawn to yeah. because it, it, it's it's almost directly talking about everything that's part of the conversation now, which is cinema is dead. You know, the art form is dead. The, the, the cinematic experience is dead. We are in the age of the franchise, and we are in the, we are in the age of TV. And the film seems to be kind of really engaged with that, but not necessarily saying that cinema as an art form is dead, but but a certain a certain type of cinema maybe and a certain way of, of, of kind of experiencing cinema sure. is no longer the same as it was. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think it's, it's sort of, it, it's, 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 it's asking is cinema in decline and, but also saying that mm. actually certain types of, certain ways of experiencing cinema are definitely, you know, they're in, they're in the past now and it, it, there is, it kind of, it is about nostalgia and, and the way we think about yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, and this might preface the, the conversation that hopefully will happen late, later on about the age that we are now in. You know, now we've got multiple platforms of consumption of film. We've got different ways in which the cinema experience as a space is conceived. We've got things like 3D, things like secret cinema. So do you think that there is still a, a hierarchy in terms of the ways that we should watch, you know, an idealised way to consume cinema, i.e. In, in this kind of environment and watching in that sort of concentrated cerebral kind of way? I think that there is for uh, scholars like us, I think there is for critics, um, and I think there really is for filmmakers. I think filmmakers, by and large, um, want their films to be seen by a big group of people on the biggest screen possible as a communal experience. Um, I'm not saying that's universal, and there are, mm. but I think that there is... That desire, that the, the big screen experience, and the, that it, that is communal, is is. But is whether retained. that's being replicated by audiences is a different question. Exactly. Yes, and I think that there is maybe a disconnect between the filmmakers and the audience. You know, you only have to kind of think about the the amount of well, the, the amount the, the group of filmmakers who want to sh- shoot on film, right. and want to preserve film, 
and you know that, that it, it needs to be done. But if you ask ninety five, ninety nine percent of the audiences whether they care, mm. they would say we don't care. We just you know we just want to watch the movie and enjoy the movie sure. on it's, our own terms. You know, yeah, more and more. Exactly. So I think that there is. Uh, the discussion's being held from a specific place, and I'm not sure it's an audience place sure. that, um, that it's being held from. But also, yeah, I think that the, the communal experience is is so different now. People still watch the um, the films together, but do they have that co- the same kind of conversation, or do they leave sure. the space and then have a conversation on their own mm. on the internet? And I think that's what's yeah. you know. And the, do you, and what happens to the the level of concentration? Let's say when you know you're doing other things while you're watching film, yeah. which obviously you know the internet allows you to do. And also, I think people are thinking about how they're going to engage on the internet. I did it the yeah. other day. I was watching the Avengers. And before the film started, I'm watching the trailers. And I'm, I'm actually thinking, oh, I, know I'm, I know how I'm going to tweet about it. <laughs> you know, I'm thinking yeah. about how I'm going to respond in a specific way. Um, yeah. And it does. It's, it's drawing me out. I'm already thinking about my engagement, um, which, you know, I would never have done when I was a kid. I would have just, like, I was so excited about this specific experience, whereas now it's, sure. it's a bit wider than that. Um, we often hear the phrase, cinema is a visual medium. How do you think that this film kind of engages with that idea? Uh, it's elemental. It's images. Um, there's, uh, well, it's images and sound, but it's not not dialogue driven. Um, it's a series of long scenes and uh, scenes without very much going on mm. um, directly plot wise. It's just it's yep. it's it's a, it's a film that is set in a specific space and uses space to draw the audience in mm. to have a relationship sure. with that with the space and. And, and, and themselves and, and kind of their own experience. It's so looking for narrative progression, you're not kind of going to find no, it in it, the traditional not, it's sense. It's not in right? there. But yeah. there is this, there's lots of evocation of feeling coming f- directly from image and composition and, you know, how long shots are, how long, how long it's taking to really get through um, the sequences. And then snippets of audio that are coming in from kind of, you know, the, sort of the, the diegetic sound and then the, the, mm. the film that's playing in the cinema as it's... Sure. Uh, Which is, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of film within a film yeah. structure, isn't it? And that film that's being played in the cinema, in the film, is King Hughes' 1966 martial arts film, which is very sort of cult, um, you know, Jap- um, sorry, Chinese martial arts uh, text. And what, what function do you think that serves in terms of the film within a film structure? Well, I think it helps give another, it adds another space, it adds another layer of, of you know, kind of, you know, spatiality to the experience, both with the sound and the, the physical area. But I think what's also interesting is that it's, it's a kind of, it's a cult mainstream movie. Mm. So I think the film is saying that although we're talking about cinema, you know, dying, you know, from this kind of position of scholars or critics or whatever, but it's almost saying that you know that everything about going to the cinema is very different now. So even you know going to see a mainstream film, just you know just going out for a popcorn night, that's changed. That's yeah. that's not the same anymore. So it's not just that art house is being affected; it's that the cinema experience is being affected. Um, and it does it really. I think it, it does it really interestingly. Sure. Yeah. You've mentioned the director, um, Sai Ming Ling, and. He's not, you know, a household name, particularly from a sort of Western-centric viewpoint. But he's somebody who's really kind of loved by film critics. But it's a classic example of somebody who doesn't get any distribution. The films are not widely seen at all, and perhaps that feeds into this this sort of change in the way cinema is understood and the importance of cinema as a sort of artistic medium, maybe. Yeah, it's. I mean, interviews with him. He's kind of. He's not. In, he's not interested in. In in kind of. In, in a kind of career within a within a cinema context, he's just he's a filmmaker who's kind of telling these things. He is he is beloved by critics. His his most recent film, Stray Dogs, comes out here 
on DVD. I think there may be a cinema release, I'm not sure, but it's definitely coming out on DVD in June. And that was a film that played festivals all, all of kind of last year and was absolutely revered. And pretty much every critic bar none, you know, the, the, the main critics around the world who saw it at the main festival said, this is a masterpiece. Who's distributing it? No one. No one's going to pick it up sure. because even, even art house distributors in this country know how they're going to make any return on it. Um, he's not, he doesn't care. He's made the film, he's moving on. But there is this sense that he is a filmmaker that we need to see and we, his films need to be available even if they're um, seen by very, very few people. So he is really held up. And it's, I think a lot of it comes back to this film. This is a film that critics and scholars really... They, they th it, it seems to be an important film for sure. this discussion and for, as I sort of alluded to earlier, a particular type of cinephilia, which is we go into the dark in a room of people and we watch this stuff and we talk about it. And none of us want to lose that, but we see every day that it is being lost and it's being lost to a new experience and a new type of, a new way of seeing films, which is, it's kind of scary because as you get older, you want to protect the things that you want to protect. Sure. Um, and what's interesting about this film is that it's, it's not directly saying the death of cinema is a bad thing. Mm. It's, you have to kind of get involved and, 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 sort of, and, and, uh, and engage with it in, in, from your perspective. Okay, so on that note, should we put it on? Yes, hope you like it. So this is uh, um, Goodbye Dragon Inn. Thank you. Okay, so you can hear the uh, second part of our screening of Goodbye Dragon in a little bit later in the show. So Neil, do you want to tell us a, um, a little bit about Mingling Sai? Because he's got a new film out at the moment, hasn't he? Yeah, he's got a new film called, well, say new, it's been yeah. doing the rounds at the festivals for uh, 18 months or you know, nearly two years. It's called Stray Dogs. Uh, it's, it's out at the ICA. It's kind of the only place you can see it cinematically. They're, they're the only people who've really kind of taken a punt on it um, uh, as, as a cinema check. And then it's out on DVD and I don't think it's even out on Blu-ray. I think it's out on DVD in, in the beginning of June. Um, so if you're in London, um, go and see it. Um, you know, amazingly well-reviewed um, and, uh, yeah, kind of very revered filmmaker. Uh, it's interesting because, uh, you know, since uh, since I knew we were screening this and since I saw the film first, been reading a lot about him. And he's he's someone who is kind of aware of and, and kind of nostalgic for the cinema experience in, in, in a personal sense, but also quite happy to not screen in cinemas and quite happy to yeah. kind of see his work taken out into into different spaces particularly gallery and kind of museum spaces and he almost sees that film as we would understand film as a, as a kind of physical medium i guess is a, as a way of putting it is is done mm. um and that now we should be looking back at that time as a as a as a, a time that's 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 passed in a yeah, sense and, and see it in a museum context see it in this space yeah. we, we go and look back on these this stuff and that mm. um whatever's happening now is kind of going to happen in its own in its own way mm. at its own time so he's uh he seems quite relaxed about that but then again as as as, as you now know from sort of seeing the film and uh he's very much a director who isn't necessarily going to be someone who's targeting the multiplex <laughs> no of course not and uh, it, it what was um, I know it was on your mind was you were slightly trepidatious I think about screening this film because it was probably the well it definitely was the most kind of difficult watch I mean again you know how do you how do you define sort of yeah. difficult it, well, what, I think it's difficult you know, with the context of the, the, the audience that we know was going to watch it you know uh, and them not watching a lot of films like that so uh, I don't think it's a difficult film if you kind of approach it in in a certain way but obviously we, we have an audience that is still getting used to approaching films in that way so sure. that was um yeah and and again it's yeah it was it was a bit of a i was 
yeah, kind of concerned, but also kind of really interested to see what, what are they going to make of it, you know, mm. where this film, when nothing happens and uh, or very little happens mm. in, in, in the sense of what they would be expecting to happen. And just what you were saying there on, on Ming Ling Sai, who, um, yeah, is is kind of aware of the fact that, the, or open to the fact of there is a new way, path forward, let's say, in terms of understanding what cinema distribution, exhibition, and all this kind of thing is, but yet is making, you know, really specific kind of art films. Yeah. Yet if you, you know, if you talk to directors like, you know, oh, talk to, if you, if you listen to directors like Christopher Nolan or Martin Scorsese or Quentin Tarantino, they are very much kind of championing the, you know, shooting on film yeah. and, 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 and keeping a, a sort of traditional sense of what cinematic filmmaking is and also viewing is in, within the auditorium. Yeah, yeah. and they, uh, but they come from that, you know, Scorsese is an interesting example. His, he's probably the biggest champion for archive preservation, international, foreign, you know, what, what you know, generally termed world cinema. But his films are, by and large, narrative mainstream films he needs the cinema space yeah in order to you know to that and that and that's the tradition that he comes from uh and and someone like nolan tarantino they need they need the cinema space um uh, and i think someone like tarantino wants the cinema space he wants that kind of communal rowdy almost kind of um uh so yeah i think it's it's interesting that they are kind of trying to trying to maintain the experience Almost because of because that's where they exist primarily as as filmmakers, mm. um, which I think makes it uh, more pressing for them to to kind of be vocal about why we need film and why we need the cinema. Um, like someone like James Gray, who you know we he, he talks on that British and Ellis podcast episode that we both love, and he's mm. very insightful. Um, I think it's someone like him that is much more kind of it, it's much more pressing to think about as a filmmaker because he doesn't exist in an art house gallery museum context but also he's not at the top of a he's not at the top of the tree no. like nolan and tarantino yes. where they will get films made and they will get films seen he's in that middle bracket of the, the kind of the mid-range drama mm. um but he can't get stuff made no because that that's what's under threat is that mm. unless you're at the very very top making these huge movies um even like scorsese is making huge movies like wolf wall street it's massive um or you're kind of prepared to be very low lo-fi indie yeah. shoot wherever you know shoot wherever and screen wherever mm. um that middle range is under threat. So there is a whole range of sure. filmmakers who... I think what's also under threat is the idea of of a, a decent-sized budget film that is aimed at an adult audience. Because, you know, there is money out there for the big blockbuster films, which, for me, are, are aimed at children, you know? And then you've got the micro-budgets or the, you know, the sort of in, independent films, which are, in these days, much less than $10 million most yeah, of the yeah, time. Yeah. And in a way, t this is where television, sort of high-end quality drama on TV, is, has taken that middle bracket, I think. Yeah, and, so, yeah definitely. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, a real, it, it's a real shift in terms of understanding where cinema sits. And, and also, I mean, just leading into the interview that we're going we're to do now, the, you know, the arrival of the digital age and different modes of spectatorship, di different modes of interaction and engagement with film in terms of plat different platforms is very much key to this this shift in understanding where cinema kind of sits culturally i think yeah and i think that you know much of the drive to keep the cinematic experience is made by those is made by those filmmakers you know who that's how they want their work to be screened you know the people that make films don't care you know necessarily how those kind of films are are made they want yeah like say big budget movies which are 
are going to make a load of money with a, with a certain audience um, in the cinema, and then that those people will leave the cinema and buy the video game, uh, watch the TV show, buy the toys, um, and uh, and of course someone like James Gray doesn't, you know. But it's interesting they still they still crave that. Um, there was a great podcast with Ed Burns, who I'm not a mass. I don't really like his films, you know. Mm. Uh, he did the brother, Brothers McMullen and stuff, um, but he was very interesting in terms of he he fully knows his films are not going to be screened in the cinema. Yeah. Um, so he's and he's carved out a really good niche career in video on demand by just directly targeting it but it, it is it seems when i heard him talk it was like he's he just said well i have to shed the ego of being a, someone who's screening a cinema because the reality of it is just it's kind of completely disappearing and i want to make films that people see mm. i have to kind of i have to move with the with the way that sure. the, the, the the business is going so um it's and it's so in flux that all these conversations are happening at the same time sure. and it's 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 kind of difficult to keep to keep track, um, while it's while it's very unstable in terms yeah. of what what is the what is the format for for seeing this stuff. So this ties in really well to the interview that I did last year with um, Dr. Sarah Atkinson, who's um, at the University of Brighton. She's an academic and a, a filmmaker, but also a kind of experimenter in form. And she also has written uh, recently last year written this book called Beyond the Screen, which. It's a kind of um, outline or, or investigation of the different ways in which the digital age and um, different kinds of communication and different um, types of technologies have expanded what we might understand as cinema and how that's challenged the very sort of traditional notion of what you know what Foucault or Belur might call this the, the dispositive, the unique experience of cinema. Yeah. So um, let's listen to my chat with Sarah now. I'm joined by Dr. Sarah Atkinson, who is Principal Lecturer in Film and Media at the University of Brighton and is an audiovisual arts practitioner undertaking explorations into new forms of fictional and dramatic storytelling in the visual and sonic media. So would you say that, that, that you know, if you go back to, to say, the emergence of, of cinema when it first, when it first arrived, it, would you say that it's, it, it was an economic or a technological or more of the formation of narrative film that sort of drives this notion of cinema that we that we like again like we take for granted yeah i mean it's a confluence of those factors exactly that you mentioned there's a number of things there you know technology um drives innovation but then pra social practices you know want to be technologically deterministic and so it was just the technology that, that drove sure. the evolution of cinema it's how people used it and responded to it mm. um and then yeah the economies of cinema obviously it's just a, a kind of interlinked, yeah, um, yeah, confluence of those factors that yeah. still drive how people, you know, engage and consume cinema today. It's interesting how those that confluence of those things have actually created a very specific kind of disciplined way of watching. Mm -hmm. And you could argue, perhaps, that you know you've got to look back at the the, the emergence of cinephilia or, or the appreciation of art house cinema and how that's that's linked very much to a very specific type of watching, i.e. you sit down, you're a concentrated viewer, you don't have distractions from outside, and the text is given a kind of primacy in that kind of situation. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, it's a very kind of conservative mode of engaging with cinema when you look at it in those ways. It's a kind of a product, I guess, of, uh, you know, industrial society, really, that people use cinema as a, as a means of escape, but it's very kind of 
straightforward in you know the exchange that happens sure. you buy a ticket you go to watch a screen audience numbers can be mapped really easily the box office figures you know it's kind of this uh, linear trajectory of a yeah. film and how its success is measured still you know still something that we see today in terms of a, a successful film is measured economically yeah. by the amount of tickets that it's that it's sold but what you have now and, and this is I guess moving on to how it's explored in the book, but feel free yeah. to step back yeah, if I've no, jumped no, too fine. far forwards, is um, is that now we've got these sort of multiple devices and multiple screens sure. to, to engage with. There's a shift in the way that audiences are now kind of breaking that, mm. breaking with the trend of that paradigm and that audience numbers are perhaps dwindling in certain age group areas, you know, right. um, struggling to get younger people through the doors yeah. to, to kind of watch. And in a way, it's, it, it's like going back to um, that, that, that question of, of the way in which people have been socialised to watch, I suppose. But if you look back at the, at the history of cinema, there's always been moments of transgression, although always been attempts to move out of that, that particular mode of watching. Mm -hmm. You know, you can go back to like early cinema of attractions, or then you've got things like smell-o-vision, and then you've got the, the buzzing seats that, mm -hmm. that people try to put in at, at different times. And then also, different types of films arguably require a different mode of spectatorship. So, you know, you could look at musicals or the Rocky Horror Picture Show, mm -hmm. and they don't require that that, that that sort of serious concentrated mode mode of watching. Do you think that that's a kind of history that's that's been somewhat ignored, perhaps? Yeah, it tends to be those um, those things that you mentioned tend to be put in the bracket of the kind of the gimmickry and the um, um, so, for example, three D up until its latest resurgence has always been seen as a, as a kind of an add on, a gimmick, something extra that's going to get people through the doors. But um, what I was thinking of in terms of what I mentioned about, you know, the industrial society and that way of escapism is that people had very kind of demanding physical jobs where they were working in factories sure. and, you know, so, so the cinema was an escape. It was a place to sit down, relax and take in a film and not have to physically work in any way. Yeah. Whereas now the, it's kind of the labouring of looking at screens. That's our, right. the predominant mode of um, yeah. work in, in certainly Western society is screen based. You look at screens all day. Sure. So what then should your escapism when it used to be to get away from what you do in the day you're actually yeah. going to emulate that by going to the cinema you're looking at another screen and is it really just another kind of way yeah. of fatigue that is you know drawing on your that's your a really interesting point i don't think that it's covered quite often the fact that what people do in their day-to-day -day lives then it's reflected in the kind of escapism or the kind of mo mo uh, modes of leisure practice that they that they engage in. Yeah, for example, if you're sat down in front of a screen for eight hours a day, do you really want to go sit in front of another screen? Yes. For two hours? Yeah. Logic tells point. you you want to go and do something physical. Yeah. Or something that's yeah completely. It's like maybe like going different. for a walk or something like that. Now is seen as a, is a, 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 a more appropriate leisure time to get away from uh, yeah. engaging with screens. Yeah, that's so really perhaps, interesting. Yeah, perhaps one factor why now there is this you know reemergence of all those. Things that you mentioned are now coming back mm. in, in waves you know the kind of the physical cinema that yeah there was vibrating seats in the 60s sure. but now you have these 4d experiences that are popping up at theme parks shopping centers but now they're the kind of the main cinemas i think in yeah. in la they're investing heavily in these um yeah kind of platforms that move mm. things that spray in your face um fans Absolutely. yeah smells all of those sorts of things that seem to be making sure. a big a big comeback well i mean that's the, the the main focus of your book isn't it which is entitled beyond the screen emerging cinema and engaging audience and 
in a sense, I, I, I didn't get the I didn't didn't get the impression in, of reading your, in reading your book that you were talking about cinema in crisis. I mean, you use this phrase, cinema is in a perpetual state of be- becoming, and you explain that new frameworks for cinema engagement, which capture the physical, the cognitive, the corporeal, the visceral, and the haptic, which are all these things that you've just kind of described in a way, and we can talk about some of those those examples. But do you see that? Cinema? Do, would you sort of disagree with the, with this idea that cinema is is in crisis, or cinema as we we've known it is in crisis? No, no, it's in it's an evolution. I think that's exactly what I mean by that statement: is that it's it's shifting, it's changing, it has multiple meanings, um, and cinema in its form that in the way that we described it when we first spoke about you know the passive auditorium mode is still a dominant mode to go and see cinema in certain types of films obviously are suited to that environment so I wouldn't say um, there's a crisis in that sense maybe and we'll come on to it in in film studies you know you intimated there might be not a crisis again but shifts changes you know lots happening in response to this dynamically changing technological economic social landscape can we talk a little bit about the the idea of mobile cinema then as well because I mean this relates a little bit back to the, again, the history of understanding or defining what what cinema, how 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 cinema affects how we see the you know the outside world. So you know you could go back to Baudelaire and then through Walter Benjamin and Frederick Jameson. And it's often been said that the the twentieth century has created that that a world that is viewed cinematically. So we you know like for example if you when nine eleven happened, everybody you know one of the main comments was this looks just like a movie. Whereas now you could you could argue that. We see the world through a kind of browsing lens rather than a cin- cinematic lens. So do you think that the arrival of digital technology, particularly things like social media, have, have really sort of changed the way that we that cinema is viewed and how we understand the outside world as cinematic? Yeah, so breaking that into the yeah, the sort of grammars that come with multi-screen, you know, browsing behaviours, um, fragmented viewing modes where things are disrupted and you can view multiple screens at the same time sure. and engage in various different types of activity has impacted upon the aesthetics of cinema So and how contemporary storytelling around a contemporary theme have have had to adapt to so how you show text messages on a screen. Sure. There's a wonderful videographic essay online where someone was showing the various different ways that directors yeah, approach yeah, that, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. with those different mechanisms of how do you show a text message because that is you know, a predominant form of communication where there's lots real revealed about exposition and character, sure. how that's used. So you see, yeah, filmmakers having to deal deal with that, whether they have a pop-up text on screen or whether Absolutely. you view the screen through the, through the lens. Um, but then you have these different viewing behaviours that have emerged and, and how filmmakers, um, creators might be dealing with that. I mean, there's one example, again mentioned in the book of, of App, um, which was a film from the Netherlands that was created basically so you got your film out in the cinema. So the intertitle at the beginning didn't say turn your mobile phones off, it said get your mobile phones out. And you had a, an app that ran alongside so whenever something was happening on screen with a person's mobile phone it actually mimicked on the audience member's mobile phone so it vibrated or messages came through mm. and actually key pieces of exposition came through so if you weren't watching it with the phone you would have missed out on certain things and you wouldn't understand why an action had taken place because mm. you haven't had that augmented experience so there's certainly lots of interesting experimentations around that idea of enabling audience members to view two screens at once 
um, various different projects on on the iPad because obviously that's a you know a phenomenal device for storytelling in the way that sure. it's a you know it's a communication device it's a camera it's a screen it has GPS sure. embedded it's got all of these different tools that you know innovators at the leading edge of digital storytelling are wanting mm. to experiment with and play Sorry. with and see what the narratives are of the future. Do you think that this kind of relates back to the the shifting understanding of of how people experience the world according to their generation. So, you know, the, the people who were born before the internet arrived um, have a, a, an understanding of the transition to pre-internet days to post-internet days. And then the people who were born, you know, post-internet, almost that, that understanding of using social media is ingrained, ingrained into their everyday lives. I mean, it's the whole digital natives, di digital immigrants debate. Mm. Do you think that that is an important way of kind of understanding that this shift of spectatorship, maybe? Um, possibly. I mean, there's another interesting dimension to that um, to pick up on when you think about those transitions from technologies. And now, kind of the 18-year-old, 21-year-old cinema goer probably hasn't had an experience. You know, they're, they're kind of, they've mm. grown up with this stuff and they fully understand yeah. it because it's been embedded in their everyday lives. But there has been this return within that particular age group to analog technologies and yeah. analog romanticism. So a resurgence in access to Polaroid cameras and, um, you know, technologies of the past that physical, vinyl, all sorts of things. You see lots of shops, particularly in Brighton, selling all of that. And it's like, absolutely targeted at an audience that have no cultural reference to it in their own life, through their parents and their grandparents. But this return to the physical or the want to connect to a physical object seems to come hand in hand with this dematerialization of the internet that seems to be a, a humanistic drive yeah. to wanting. And I think that's where something like Secret Cinema comes about and all the things that it represented, particularly with Back to the Future, this reference to 3D glasses and 3D technology wanting to have some sort of cinematic object yeah. attachment, you know, in some But it tells us that the cinematic was always kind of ontological, you know what I mean? The embodied mm. experience was always fundamental, fundamentally a part of, of being a cinematic spectator. Yes, yeah. But we tend to sort of um, ignore that. And when we go into the cinema, it's like the lights go down and it, and it sort of metaphorically disembodies us yes you know where yeah. we're supposed to sit still and not be distracted but really we always were a, a part of the a part of the space itself really yeah absolutely yeah they're social spaces by their nature you know it's a joint activity yeah watching i just want to finish off by talking a little bit about the effect on film scholarship so i've been to many film studies conferences where i've raised these issues and you get a very hostile reaction i mean i don't know I don't know whether you've experienced the same things, do you? And, and and whether you think perhaps, you know, this is leading to again. I hate to use the word crisis, but at least a um, a, a self-reflexive look at what film studies actually does. If suddenly the primacy of the text is is undermined, mm. I mean, it's really yeah, it's really challenging to our discipline, um, and you probably feel it yourself when you come to these um, events or texts that. Have these multiple dimensions how you can apply existing conceptual frameworks and existing theories that have been designed purely for close <coughs> textual analysis or audience analysis so the theoretical tools that we've been used to in our discipline kind of fall short they're no longer appropriate or adequate to really explore sure. something and it demands new new ways of evolving those existing theories building new frameworks so just go back to the secret cinema one because that's the one I'm mm. sort of working on most at the moment. I actually um, collaborated with a game scholar in order to produce that paper because I felt, you know, I didn't have sure. the necessary background and tools to go into that experience and analyse it adequately because there was so much 
more than just the filmic text itself and there was a lot relating to playfulness gameplay right. where we needed the sort of the frameworks of that have evolved through through game studies so sure. as a scholar i've had to expand you know that that net wider really to sure. of a palette of things that i draw upon when i come to these texts because yeah previous they're not fully inadequate in of, of their own right but yeah. you know you can't just bring one perspective now brilliant well, Dr. Sarah Atkinson, thanks very much for talking to us. You're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Great. Still to come, we've got our post-film discussion of Goodbye Dragon Inn, uh, but now we're just going to kind of pick up on some of the stuff that was uh, that came out of that, that really good interview. Uh, Dario, is the auditorium experience under threat as we know it? And to what extent, I guess, is... Well, know? if you look at the, the, the numbers... There has been a steady increase in cinema admissions from the 1980s. If you look at the UK numbers, if you look generally at the US and world numbers of people going to the cinema, there has, has been a steady increase. I think what has changed is the kind of broad availability of what's out there in the auditorium. So, if you know, we're in the multiplex era. If you go to a multiplex that's got 20 screens, when Avengers Assemble or Fast and the Furious was it seven or eight seven now? Or no, Whatever. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when that comes out, you know, you've got 15 screens that are taken up. Yeah. And then where is the you know possibility of seeing? And there may be a sort of a couple of films that are programmed against the big, the big blockbuster. Well, that was the thing we were we we tried, we tried to go and watch Far from the Madding Crowd down here in in Falmouth, and uh, it sold out. The sold out to the you know the, the Grey Pound had a. Uh, and, and muscled in and and, and taken all the seats. Uh, and our options apart from that were. Uh, Avengers uh, in 2D or 3D, uh, Fast and Furious Seven, or, or Unfriended, this kind of you know um, yeah. horror movie in the vein, you know in the vein of kind of the paranormal activity and that kind of low budget, sure. high octane. Uh, but, but it also just shows yeah. that the Far From Madden Crown was sold out. So you know that the and and it relates back to uh, Marigold Hotel, Best Exotic Marigold Hotel, which have done really well with the sort of you know quote unquote the older generation and the King's Speech and this, these kinds of films. So there's a massive audience out there. Yeah for certain kinds of films that are not for 14-year-old boys, yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, but are they being catered for? I'm sure that they could have um, had another screening of Far, Far From the Madding Crowd yeah. or another, you know, another auditorium yeah. viewing at the same time. But there was, tw I mean, there was like 20 films. I mean, you know, the yeah. guy from the BFI, uh, I think it was Ben um, at the BFI sort of spoke about this the other week, um, and there's a lot of talk about it. I think Francine Stock mentioned it on the... On the radio program, on on the film program on Radio Four, there's 20 to 23 films being released every week. Um, where are they? I mean, if you're not yeah. in London or Manchester or Edinburgh, where are these films? And what's interesting is that I don't think that it's a stretch to say that something like Caramoli's The Falling isn't going to find an, an audience. You know, yeah. it seems like a kind of it, well, like almost kind of um, hysterical kind of ghost movie uh, mm. with a young cast. Someone who, you know, one of the leads in Game of Thrones. Sure. There's the Kirk Cobain documentary Montage of Heck, which has been incredibly well reviewed. Um, I'm sure that people in a university town would want to see a documentary about Nirvana. Where are these films? And mm. I think that's what's really worrying is that, yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting if you could break the demographic down in terms of overall numbers versus numbers for different types of films and you know those figures will will be out there but maybe there's a sense in which whether this is true or not the perception that you you go out to the cinema to see a spectacle yeah, yeah. and you wouldn't go out to to the cinema itself to see let's say the falling or something yeah. like that because you could catch that 
you know, on demand, eventually on iTunes or, or Curzon or whatever the, the platform might be. Um, so there's this sense of you, you need to, to, to go to the cinema, perhaps, go to the, to have the auditorium experience. You need to be overwhelmed. You know, it yeah. needs to be massive special effects, you know, big, loud action, yeah. this, this type of stuff. Because, and that has very much changed like, from the, the, the 70s, 60s and yeah. 70s when, you know, art films were the, were the kind of films that you would go and see at the auditorium because there was something kind of cinematic about them that, that, that wasn't necessarily spectacle or action. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely something that Goodbye Dragon Inn kind of alludes to is that the cinema is now, is now literally a spectacular visual experience. That's mm. what you're going for. Anything else culturally, socially, uh, personally is, is has, has kind of been wiped out. You can't, you can't go for any other reason other than just being bombarded with this, this kind of water cooler spectacle moment. Um, and that's kind of sad because it's, you know, um, you know, from what I've seen of The Falling, it's it looks deeply cinematic, mm. you know, but there is no home for that visual storytelling in the cinema experience, mm. in, in the cinema space, um, which is just, it's it's kind of, it's strange because part of me thinks, okay, that's the way the medium is going, just go with it, you know, because we can't change it. But there is a kind of sadness to it and that's what I'm kind of interested in, why I like Goodbye Dragon in so much because is it my personal nostalgia or is, or is there something that needs to be preserved about seeing certain types of films in these spaces. Sure. I, I mean, I'm, I'm in two minds. I mean, I don't know how, how you are. Maybe you can sort of talk a little bit about this, about the notion of the auditorium experience being at the top of the hierarchy in yeah. terms of you, you can only really experience, this, only really have the cinematic experience within the auditorium. So the lights go down, you're concentrated. Hopefully on you're not getting disturbed by, you know, people kicking your chair or popcorn eaters. But... You know what I mean? That yeah. that is the, the the absolute zenith of having this relationship with with the the film in within the environment of, of the cinema itself. But yet there are there are kind of issues with that in terms of again what kind of films are you, are you going to watch? Um, what is your what what is the interpersonal relationship with a film? How much is it about the text itself, and how much is it about the, the experience of being in, in, in the cinema. And those two things are really kind of problematic questions. And it's one of the things that, that kind of we struggle with within the context of film studies. Yeah. What are you actually studying? An experience or is the, is the primacy of the text key or does the environment give the primacy to the text in a certain kind of way? Yeah, no, and I think that is an important question to ask. And it's, again, it's, is, it, is it just me personally, I like it in a certain way or is it do I feel that it's that that is the best way to experience it? I mean, I kind of mention it in the in the discussion around around Goodbye Dragon Inn, in that uh, when I watched it at first, I watched it at home on on my on my TV, um, and I loved the film. Uh, but I realised when I watched it in the cinema when we all watched it together that well, the two things, and I think they're, they're quite contradictory. One, there was so much I missed obviously the first time I watched it, and I, and I thinking back, I think it's probably because I had my phone there. Mm. And I am kind of drifting out because it's such a slow film, or something happens, or something happens outside, or my dog barks, you know, as he as he frequently does when someone walks <laughs> past the window. Yeah. Um, and I'm drawn out of that. Um, but in the cinema experience, I was drawn out by things that were being talked about in the film. It was so interesting right. because people left, people walked out of the screening, um, as people kind of do in the film. People went to the toilet and came out. I went to the toilet halfway through, and there's that great sequence in the film where. You know, there's this great kind of scene in a toilet, um, which is just absolutely wonderful. Um, 
And then when I went to the toilet, I'm kind of thinking about, you know, I'm kind of recalling that and, the, and you know, the feeling of that scene. So there's so much going on. I think that's that's deliberate from uh, from uh, Mingling Sai. Um, but yeah, I don't know whether it is my, whether it is just me that, that loves seeing films in that way, that, that kind of states that that's the most important way to do it uh, or, you know, the most valid way of doing mm. it or whether that, that there is generally something in, in films but what's before. interesting, yeah, when we're as academics as well, you know, we, we write blogs and we also write academic pieces about films. But I would never solely watch a film in the cinema if I was writing an academic piece about it. Yeah. So I would have it on DVD, you know, and you would play it over and over again and get all the all the details. And it's really, I find that really kind of contradictory. Yeah. That idea that you're a film studies person and you're you're writing an in depth, close reading of a text. But yet you wouldn't watch it in this day and age. You wouldn't watch it only in the cinema yeah. to write your article. Yeah, no, that's completely changed, hasn't it? I mean, before, you know, scholars would be only be able to see the film, say, once. Mm. And that they'd have to write everything, you know, a book <laughs> yeah. based on seeing all of John Ford or like some of John Ford's films once, you know. Uh, and that's completely different now. Um, and yeah, and then I just wrote a piece, I wrote a book chapter about uh, the Beastie Boys concert film and this practice of... Uh, taking photos at gigs and kind of videoing gigs. And, and I, I can't stand that. But there was something about the study of the practice mm. that kind of made me think, actually, you know, there is, I think there's a validity to this practice that, you know, when we say people shouldn't do it, this this is how you should experience something. That's really problematic. It is because it's how can you define what somebody else's pleasure exactly. in viewing, viewing exactly. is. And then you realise, oh, it's purely subjective. This is me, how yeah. I want it. And I want to be able to see a film in the cinema, mm. fall in love with it in that space, and yeah. then decide how I... But it's like popcorn. I, I can't stand popcorn. I can't stand people who eat popcorn in the cinema. But yet, popcorn has kept the cinema industry alive in, in, exactly, in, yeah. in, in various yeah. uh, various times, in various ways. I and mean, you are right. I mean, popcorn is horrid yeah. uh, in the cinema. Uh, but I like popcorn at home. Yeah. You know, it's like when I can just, you know, um, my girlfriend finds that particularly hilarious that, you know, she's like, oh, I didn't get popcorn. I thought, why didn't you get popcorn? I want popcorn at home. I don't want to hear someone else eating popcorn <laughs> when I'm in the cinema. I mean, it's and when you say it like that, it's ludicrous. Yeah. Um, and then you realise this is something that is going to be very difficult to ever kind of come to any consensus on. No, and maybe sure. that's a good thing. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Okay. So um, I think we should get into our um, discussion or the audience's really uh, interesting discussion of Goodbye Dragon Inn. So let's listen to that. So, um, uh, excited to hear what people thought of that. Uh, Dario, uh, what did you think of that? Because you've, um, yeah. you only came to the film quite recently. Yeah, so. that's right. I've, I've seen it before, but only only very recently. It's, it's, it's better on the big screen, that's, that's for sure. It's... <laughs> It's so out of kilter with everything, you know, 99.9% .9 of films that we expect a mainstream film to deliver. You've almost got to reprogram yourself to watch in a certain kind of way. Yeah. And that doesn't lend itself to watching on the TV or at home in that environment, which is kind of interesting because, you know, it's, it's a film that's sort of alluding to the idea of the death of the cinema experience, you know, and... and there is it's playing with that whole those notions of nostalgia because it's nostalgic for something that actually is I wouldn't want to go watch a film in in there yeah, yeah. and the, those great moments really about people disturbing you in the cinema I thought it was ironic a couple of people who, who walked out were on their phones and it's just the irony of it was not lost on me let, let, let's say and the tension of somebody breaking the pistachio yeah. nuts just one after another it it, it builds up and it's interesting because you sort of 
there is sort of very little happens, as you said. In but you know, in a way, there's sort of two unrequited love stories going on at the same time. I mean, was the ghost the projectionist? You know what I mean? Because yeah. she seems to be searching for him or looking for where he is, and then he turns up at the end because you don't see him throughout. But you never really sort of find out about who he is or anything yeah, like yeah. that. And yeah. then there's that sort of scene at the moment where she comes into the frame while he's going. But is that are, are you are you kind of imposing love story on it? Because I don't know. We need these conventions. Yeah, exactly. Need, you know, I think I think that's what's really interesting about it. It's it's it's, it's almost kind of challenging you to say. Yeah. Work out a story, you know, um, no, from absolutely. these little fragments. Yeah. Well, it's requ- it's requ- requiring requ- requiring you to work very hard yeah. as an or- an audience yeah. member because you know we're, we're we're constantly fed, aren't we? Exposition, we're fed fast cuts, we're fed action, as and that becomes an expectation of what cinema should deliver, and and th- this just doesn't. It's sort of pure art art form, really, yeah, yeah. in and of itself, and it's it's it, it's so true that. It's very difficult for an audience, I think, who are situated within the context of what where what the expectations of mainstream cinema should be, to sit through eighty minutes really of of that kind of film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't again. I don't well, know we'll see. If it was uh, sure. How did you feel about it on the big screen um, again? I, I, again, yeah. I mean, I I love seeing it on the big screen because I think it's such a it's such an interesting film about space and about the cinema space, yeah. um, and it's you know, the way it kind of positions you as a viewer of other viewers and of the and of the film that they're watching mm. um, and the way it puts you in that cinema it just it you know kind of when I think about my early cinema experiences a lot of the kind of the, the kind of the visual cues in my head are not necessarily particular films but kind of what, queuing on a staircase yeah because you know that's there was only three screens and you know mm. like the big film or, or waiting in a corridor the first time I went in a projectionist room it really draws out these kind of spatial sure. memories that have nothing to do with films but just just Kind of memories that I have of when I started watching films sure. in that space, um, and that's what that's what I loved about. It. And mm. it's you know, and also watching the screens, you really get a sense of the the time, you know, because there's yeah, no yeah. distraction. There's just you and the. Mm. Um, whereas obviously, even at home, I just think, oh, you know, there's things I I missed. I'd probably just kind of you, you know, go off and do other things. Yeah, you know, or just kind of, of you know checking my phone or whatever, you know, without yeah. even realizing because there's there's so many subtleties sure. in it. But one thing I did, which it did make me kind of smile, is I remember when I was young and I used to go to. Um, the cinema and you kind of as you're developing kind of cinephilia it's it's so important to you and the staff at these places if they weren't like (laughs) you know I just felt kind of slighted if they weren't kind of as passionate as I was and you forget that it's a job and I think what's wonderful about this film is that it kind of says while you're in there with that that life goes on Mm. and the people who are kind of making that experience are it's just their job and it's their you know and it's yeah and it kind of challenges you to say well how do you feel about that how do you feel about the fact that it's just a movie, but mm. kind of when you're in there, there's nothing more important. Yeah. But, but you know, life. It's it, I. I just find it really fascinating in, in mm. so many ways. But I might sure. be in the minority. I have yeah. <laughs> so, does anybody want to make a comment? As, yeah, as question? usual, please wait for the mic so that we can get it on the. Yeah. Uh, on the. Go ahead. Please don't be shy if you you know if uh, if you want to uh, say something that you know. Yeah, no, I'm very interested. Obviously, it's yeah. Not, uh, Even if it's not, you know, like oh yeah, it was wonderful. You know, <laughs> don't worry about that. We might struggle for that. Yeah, we might struggle <laughs> for that, but just on on the back of the left hand side. Let me pass it down, Celine. It's all right. It's all all part of the recording. I should have sat somewhere <laughs> different. That's okay. Well, no, I. 
the first thing I said is I, I absolutely loved it. I absolutely okay. loved it. I thought it was incredibly clever. It was a, a really brilliant film. I'm really happy that you put it on. Oh, great. Oh, great. Thanks yeah. for that. That's, um, that's great. There's lots of things to say, <laughs> but well, I think I thought it, it reminded me all the way through. I thought one of the things I thought was really interesting is that in one way it felt like a cinema verite documentary, mm. similar to a lot of the sort of 60s and 70s. Fred Wiseman in particular. Um, but at the same time, it seemed to be sort of referencing loads of different types of films, like horrors, westerns, romance, that, yeah. you know, that you talked about, as if it's, it's kind of showing all those things you said about what happens behind the scenes, that it is just a job for many people, it's just a building, it, you, know, you, just, you go there, you pay money, you watch a film, it exists to make money. But, but it, at the same time, it's a place of dreams. And all you know, incredible things happen, hopefully, yeah. when you know mm. when people are in there. The one thing I thought really summed that up was with the young woman who's you know walking around. You know, you, you're watching. You see a lot of her. There's very long duration takes. She, clearly, she's got a disability. It's not that easy for her to do a job. It's very mundane. But then there's that one moment when she—I don't know if she was behind the screen—but she goes through a door and suddenly she's looking up at the the images. And just for a second, it's very very fast cuts between the young woman sword fighter who's on the screen, she's on the left-hand side looking to the right, the woman is on the right hand a bit lower down looking up to the left, and she's got the light pouring on her, those little kind of yeah. pinpoints of light, and, and it's suddenly for a moment she is that, like they're looking at one another and she can be that person, she can, she can dream, and not just dream, be someone that she's not and go into that other world. Absolutely, mm. yeah. And it's beautifully shot as well, the way that was... That was done. I just I thought that was amazing. Great. The way it says all this mundanity, all this you know, it's run down, all this regret for the possible death of cinema, and then just like that, just for a moment, you get a feeling of just what what can happen in the cinema and how amazing an art form it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like that whole ghost sequence is very hot. The horror convention's mm. really kind of stretched out, and the mm. end kind of is that. The end reminds me of Singing in the Rain. Mm. You know, it really conjures that kind of. Mm. Yeah, I think it's. And, and, that, and the Purple Rose of Cairo kind of comes to mind. Yeah, in that, I, in that I sequence think about there, that you know, as well. very much. It's yeah. It's what you're saying as well about the about the camera and the observational style. I mean, w one thing that I just noticed there, and the second time I was watching, was when they're in the bathroom. You know, you've got that comedic scene where they're all mm. at the urinals, but that's that's shot as if it was a surveillance camera. Mm. So you've got that sort of depth depth of lens, which adds beautifully to when the guy comes in and collects his <laughs> cigarettes, which is just a beautiful little moment. But yeah, and, and then when the guys kind of. Uh, you know, sort of in in the bowels of the cinema, mm. and he has that kind of uh, moment with the guy who tells him about the ghost. Mm. That guy is, is is the closest thing to a movie star in the film. Mm. The way he's shot, the way he's lit, and the way he's kind of exalted by that guy. So mm. there is that real romance for not only I guess kind of like on the screen, but how we how we create movies in our own life and how we ha mm. kind of elevate the mundane to this to this kind of. I just I, I would, you know I'll let someone else do it. That bit as well, I thought it was very, there was a lot of it that's very film noir. And that bit in particular, again, there was a fantastic bit of shot composition in the early part of that, where that, that person is standing closer, you know, in the foreground. Yeah. He sort of turned slightly to, well, to our, he turns to, to our left smoke, blows out the smoke, and it's blowing right across the, that other chap who we see a lot of mm. wandering around, sort of there out of focus in the back. And just yeah, beautiful. Yeah, beautiful you could just absolutely... Fantastic! So, you know, for all the, for all the, um, you know, sort of maybe, for some people, difficulty, you know, to engage with this. For all that it seems very, um, you know, almost intentional. Well, it probably isn't, and for a and good thing too. Rejecting 
the things that we that so many people expect film to do. It, there's so much sort of sense of of art about this and film history as well. Sure. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah I, I, absolutely amazing film. Thank you. Really Thank you. brilliant. Anybody else want to, uh, Michael? We'll start with Rachel and then, Rachel and then Michael. Um, I really liked it because I feel like um, you could really feel the intent of the filmmaker that it's like he was really throwing it on the viewer to giving them all that space to make their own sense of the film. But then at the same time saying all those things like and referencing all those different types of films. Um, I felt like the guy who was wandering around being very socially awkward and getting <laughs> up in people's faces. I felt like he could have been a ghost. Right. <laughs> but and but then he didn't have to be. He was like it's like the director was just throwing it in there as a possibility. Like he like throw little morsels of clues but and then the viewer had to piece them together. But there was no like one answer. Yeah. So I liked that. Mm. He was kind of contradictory, that guy, because on the one hand, he was the one who was getting annoyed by people, you know, with their bare feet and all, all that stuff. And then when the other person comes in and sits right next to you, how often does that happen? You're like, what's going on? You've got the whole cinema, go away. But then, but then obviously, he, it, there's the inference that he's trying to find some kind of clandestine relationship. And that relates a little bit to that, that idea of, you know, the social experience of cinema. There's a whole kind of um, underground t tradition of the cinema space being a place yeah. where you know, sex, relationships, all this kind of thing happen. Yeah, that kind of going, going to the cinema to belong in, 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 in various kind of social groups, I think, is really, is really interesting the way the film kind of plays with that. You know, he's genuinely looking for something. Yeah. It's great because he is, he is contradictory. You know, he wants this kind yeah. of cerebral experience where when he wants to watch the film, yeah. it's kind of no one tampers with it, but then he also wants to go off for half an hour. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's such an interesting contradiction. And, it, yeah, it's... it's uh, yeah, and, and I suppose that relates to what you were talking about before that like somebody's idealised version of, of the cinema experience is very different or in a different context can, can, can change you yeah. know and, and how we watch films is, is a very personal subjective thing maybe yeah and also that, but, but it, 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 before in, in you know before the internet if we want to kind of be very mm. very general you went to the cinema and the film was on at a certain time. Yep. That was, the, you know, it, it was a very kind of regimented and almost kind of, you know, simple experience. So everyone had, not had the same emotional experience, but mm. the same kind of physical experience. Now, because people can choose exactly how and when they watch stuff, it's it's almost liberated that kind of, that experience. To sure. be, you know, so there isn't, there is no longer a mm. cinema experience because people kind of curate their own in, in, in many ways or, mm. um, yeah. It's, sure. Michael, did you, did you remember that? Yeah, I was going to say, um, th this probably is going to sound kind of strange, but I thought it was kind of strangely sexy in a way. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of sexual tension in it, almost at times to the point of eroticism. Uh, you know, you've got that the guy who's wandering around awkwardly. He basically seems to be spending the entire thing cruising, <laughs> but never actually having sex with anyone. And... Uh, yeah, that seems to be playing on a kind of look but don't touch. <laughs> uh, you know, movies can be sexy, but they're still a complete fantasy. Or uh, Yeah, that, that was the thing that kind of struck me the most. It, it, none of that felt like it should be sexy, but it was. Yeah. Mm. No, I completely, I completely agree, and I think there is that, there is that element to it. Mm. Um, the, the, the voyeur 
you know, and how do you kind of, yeah. how do you make things, I think it's, in, you know, how do you make things real? He can't make it real. He's no. physically and socially incapable sure. of, 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 of kind of engaging and that kind of re- where he brushes up against the guy. It's so, yeah, yeah. so awkward, but also really sweet and just, it is, it's so tense in, in, that, in those corridors, I think it's... It must be quite disappointing if you're trying to cruise and then you go up to a guy and he says, the place is haunted and then buggers off, you know what I mean? It's, uh, I hate when that happens. Come to fruition in a sense, <laughs> does it? But yeah, yeah, that, I take your point. It's, it is, and then you've got the, the woman with the, with, again, with the nut, the nut sort of cracking them all the time. There seems to be a sort of sexual tension there again, but, I, you know, it kind of works in a weird way. I think you're, you're right in that sense. Anybody else want to uh, add anything? Adam, back. You're up. Um, pass it back. <laughs> yeah, kind of on the, the opposite end of the spectrum to what Mike was saying, I kind of like uh, the way the child was positioned in the film. Right. Um, you know, children are often kind of painted as, a, as uh, you know, beings that can't really keep an attention span <laughs> for more than like five minutes. But um, the child was consistently transfixed throughout the film, yeah. you know, sitting there and kind of slouched in his chair. Um, if anything, getting more comfortable as the film went on, um, you know, eating his food and whatever. And when the socially awkward guy initially came in, he kind of gives, gives the child a look, maybe kind of like this envious look. It may be that he thinks the child shouldn't be there while he's doing what he's doing. Um, but this just uh, it kind of makes a comment on that, you know, children, you know, they can be transfixed for an hour and a half, two hours. They can enjoy something. They can just let it kind of wash over them and enjoy it. And something about the kind of like, you know, nostalgic look that we can't get that back because we have so many distractions, we have so many things going on, we can't enjoy a film the same way as sort of the, the child can, yeah, which yeah. I just thought was quite interesting. Mm. I think that relates as well to the scene where you, the, it was sort of transfixed on the, guy, the older guy's face and you always, almost thought any moment he's going to start crying and yeah. it's a sort of half smile. So it's played with that sort of melancholia, I think, maybe. Did people the, get who the old guys were? Because I, I didn't want to mention it before the film. I think it, it was a, were the actors. Yeah, they're the mm. actors. I think they mentioned... Yeah. I think they're meant to be the actors from the film, right. so I think they're, that, he's kind of yeah. That's what he sort of says. No one remembers us anymore. Right. Like, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's them on the screen. Yeah. And I think that I'm supposed to be his grandson. Is, is, is yeah. It was nice child, way. Yeah. It was sort of like when they were walking yeah. out, holding his hand, and uh, yeah, just sort of nice symbolism there. That I, yeah. Yeah, kind of and it does. It makes you kind of you know uh, yearn for that that innocent kind of just you know spectacle where you just watch stuff and yeah. you just you're just blown away by the you know the the big screen and this kind of visual experience and it does. Sure. Yeah. Because so, we're so critical now, <laughs> you know, you can't help it. You can't, but you can't separate it. Once, it's, once, you're, once you're doing that, that's it. There's yeah. no going back. Innocence mm. There's no going back. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, 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 that's good. Yeah, it's interesting. Absolutely. Any, any final? Jasmine, we'll do, uh, one more and then uh, we'll end for this evening. No, I'm stuck. <laughs> <laughs> Got wire problems this evening. Going back to the guy who was like almost crying, the actor, it, it was really strange seeing him because the film was like a complete rush of emotions for me. At the beginning, I kind of had that bored feeling of the slow pace just from being so used to a certain kind of cinema. And I was like, oh, yeah, I should get my phone out. Oh, I should go do this and this. And then we see the guy who gets annoyed by people like that. And I suddenly felt really, you know, self-righteous. Like, yes, I don't like people doing this. <laughs> I don't go to the cinema for this reason because people are too loud and things like that. And... Then I saw that guy, and it was like he completely ignored all those stuff and was completely submerged in it. And I felt this absolute guilt, like I should be at the cinema doing this, ignoring everybody else. And it, it was so weird how I went from these three different stages throughout the film, like, like as if I was three different viewers. It was really interesting. I'm not sure if anybody else felt that way, but yeah, mm-hmm. I, it was such a, you know, a, 
oh, what's what, like, I just felt so guilty for just complaining yeah. about the film. I complained about the film, then complained about the audience, and then there was just this mm. guy just completely loving films, you yeah, know, mm. having been in films and watching films. Same as with The Child. Yeah, and I, 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 that's kind of my, that was my experience of watching it, you know, was, like I sort of said, you know, questioning how dedicated am I to kind of eat, keeping this, com the preservation of this thing, you know, what, and if we're, you know, and the podcast is very much, you know, kind of, interested in that thing of like we can't i can't save the cinemas we can't we can't go out and save the cinemas you know they are changing those big rooms they're kind of done so but sharing the experience and talking about it and kind of sh and sharing the films is we can do that mm. and it kind of made me want to be more active you know it made me want to share that film with people and be nervous and think god they're all going to hate it you know <laughs> and i love it so much um but also i think that it, it it needs to be seen and then people need to kind of to talk about it um and even if they don't like it we need to talk about it you know because i think that the conversation is and 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 the kind of the, that experience of getting together in a room and and, and seeing it i think is, mm. is so important and it um but i did feel guilty i think oh yeah i still i do that I, you know i'm on my phone or mm. i'm you know and it's but that's a deliberate to me that's a totally deliberate thing in terms of constructing like a scene that is really really long yeah. and encourages you to then sort of think right how long am I going to be able to stand the length of this scene? And then within the scene, shows you people yeah. breaking the conventions. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. working in a sort of meta kind of yeah. kind of way. So oh, yeah. that's really it's provocative, really clever. I think, in, yeah, yeah. In, in that sense. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And one of the longest shots is of a of an entirely empty auditorium. Yeah, you just exactly. see the seats, um, which I just think is brilliant. Mm. Um, you know, and you can feel you can feel it being pushed on you. You know, just yeah. it's, uh, for yes. sure, for sure. Okay, um, I think we'll. Oh, Celine, maybe one more. Yeah, I mean, if people have still got more. Then yeah, 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 that's fine. Just we'll the last one. I don't know how close I'm supposed to hold the no, mic, but um, <laughs> the the other thing that I find really uh, interesting is that it's so silent. There's no there's no exchange. There's hardly any words spoken. Uh, but what I find really interesting is the sounds. The sounds throughout the film play an enormous role in leading you uh, through the film. And the other thing that I found. Um, was again coming back to what has been mentioned already is the we're constantly looking for the story and so throughout the film you're trying to create this narrative and you're you're starting it where he you know he's he's approaching this guy and you think he's going to ask for a lighter but no he just kind of stares at him really weirdly <laughs> uh, there's there's moments when you think it's going to end like that long scene of that empty uh, cinema room but no it carries on yeah. and um, so many scenes are led not only by the angle of the of the shot but also by the sounds and yeah. that i find really interesting sure. so you you hear often the footsteps before you actually see the person or yeah. the nuts before you see that lady or mm. it's always playing with the, the your senses mm. I yeah i think it's i mean it's probably it's probably that's it's really good that you kind of pointed out because earlier on we sort of said that film was a visual medium and of course it's not a visual medium it's an audio visual medium you know even silent cinema you know, when it was first, you know, sort of screened was screened with, with accompaniment, um, be it kind of people talking over the top, uh, particularly in Japan, they used to kind of do, they used to have actors kind of doing performances or, or, or score. Um, it, it, you can't experience it without the sound. And I, I, I completely agree that the way that sound is used and the way that the, the film sound is used and yeah. when the dialogue drops in, you're almost tempted to kind of, he's almost saying, is, is the dialogue from the film related to the, what you're seeing in mm. the auditorium, and I think it's synced, you know, it's synced up yeah. in a very particular way. Yeah, you know. So, but you're, but yeah. So I, I think I absolutely think it's uh, it, it's it's key to the experience, and and creating that sense of space as well. Like you say, where things are off, 
it's not a kind of a it's almost a surround sound experience without in in that kind of modern way but just in mm. you, you get a sense of where where you are in that building and where other people are and yeah it's absolutely and just one last point is the beginning of the film i i i thought the sound was really excruciating pain it was it wasn't a nice experience and i thought if it lasts any longer i might have to actually leave oh. <laughs> i don't know if anyone else well, we kept you here so uh, <laughs> well again, again it's that it can't that kind of crackly you know poorly sort of recorded sound that that gives you that sort of signifies a film from a particular period i, I think under particular you know production conditions yeah, yeah. i think yeah. Absolutely. And there's no attempt to clean it up. It's no. like you, get, you know that's an old print of an sure. old film. So. Sure. Okay, wonderful. Well, uh, just before we go, because um, uh, this is the last time we're going to be doing this for a while, I want to say a big thank you to our, um, uh, our kind of team of recorders um, and uh, editors on the podcast, uh, James, Marcus and Mike, who's not here tonight. Can you give them a round of applause before we go? Thank you. Cheers, um, guys. We appreciate it. Yeah, they've done a, they've done a really good job over the, uh, over the course of these, um, these episodes, uh, and it's been really fun working with them. Yeah, so. and we've got, we, we are going to have various podcasts going out over the summer, not around screenings, but we have ideas about some things that we're going to do, so look out for them. And please subscribe to us now that we're on iTunes. Yes, thank you very much. Okay, so thank you very much, and good night. So, Neil, you must have been incredibly pleased with the, the reaction there. I mean, I, I thought that, that that film, out of all the ones we've screened so far in the, in the series, um, that seems to have got the most love. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really nice and over, kind of overwhelming, really, that people not only... I mean, some people genuinely loved it and thought it was... You know, thought it was they, they seemed really pleased to have kind of been introduced to it, which was, which was wonderful. But everyone really... It made people think, and it made people think about their response to the film and their response yeah. to kind of cinema in general. And that was really encouraging that it just inspired such a thoughtful and mm. engaging debate, you know, where people, you could see that people were, were really fascinated by what they said. I love, I love it when, when people get past the good and bad. Yeah. This is a good film. This is a bad film, which is all totally arbitrary yeah. and subjective. But when they say this film made me think about something, it drew out issues that I want to discuss and yeah. definitely did that. Yeah, definitely. And, and kind of people trying to get beyond the the idea that film has to have three acts that it has to have yeah. sympathetic characters that you that you kind of clearly understand. it has to be explained <laughs> yeah you know um, which I think is you know is, is 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 so much of what people are are kind of fed and, and and see so to see people really engaging with the film what a film can be beyond yeah that was 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 just really 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 pleasing and the, and the, the 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 actual way in which you know drawn out sequences long sequences long takes were used for a cinematic purpose where everything we seem to get you know these days in the mainstream particularly is just cut 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 yeah, well, explain I, explain explain yeah, explain and i retweeted you know? last night someone had kind of done a, a, a they, they tweeted saying um there are 18 cuts in tarkovsky's the sacrifice <laughs> and there's 2000 over 2500 in the new avengers film and you just kind of think wow you know um what what is more cinematic and i would say that tarkovsky is more cinematic yeah yeah, you yeah. Know, just that's you know so yeah I think and definitely more thoughtful well uh, <laughs> yeah i mean not, that's not for us to say okay. but but, you, but i think we're both right on that um yeah so but, but so that was good yeah they're really engaging with the form and and what cinema can be and what it, what it, what it, you know kind of expanding their own kind of ideas of 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 cinematic and it, it was interesting it was making them question their own attention span and their own almost their own own conditioning to to how they watch yeah films, that was you know? really great that sort of discussion of i am i have been socialized to watch in this kind of way and i had to give give up 
that or reprogram myself, yeah. you know, in this space of watching to be able to kind of get through. And we did have, you know, did we have one person walk out? You know, one of our sort of two, uh, two, two people who you know, just couldn't deal with it, you know. Yeah, which, which is, is really interesting. Was it, and yeah, you kind of wanted them to stay just so you could hear why they left. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which obviously is a misnomer in itself. But mm. yeah, um, yeah, and that's that's kind of that's that's that that was as revealing as, as anything else was seeing. Okay, yeah, there are there. I mean, there are there are people who that film is difficult and it is challenging. Uh, even though that it's not difficult in the way that something like Tarkovsky would be difficult because it's mm. although it's long and drawn out and slow. It's still quite clear what's happening. You yeah, know, there is still kind of a uh, a sense of of logic to the yeah. actions of, of of the character. So this is the last episode in season one of the Cinematologist. However, we are going to have uh, episodes over the summer that are not going to be based around uh, a, a live audience screening. But we are have got some plans of of things coming up, haven't we? Yeah. There's, so there's two things that we we well uh, that we want to kind of get out. Um, we've uh, we're going to do a kind of sci-fi special. Uh, which will kind of collect some of our individual introductions to films that we've done over the past year uh, for the BFI season on uh, Days of uh, Days of Fear and Wonder. So we're going to put those out uh, in a podcast where we also um, face off about uh, Pacific Rim. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this because this is the the bet noir film is, yeah. between me and you, isn't it? Yeah, this 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 brings out the 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 claws uh, frequently. Um, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Um, where we uh, both kind of really get to the the, the root of um, our, my fervent love and your fervent dislike for that film, and uh, yeah, and, and, and just announced we've been asked um, to uh, to do a cinematologist at uh, the Port Elliot Festival in Cornwall. So, um, and we have got hopefully plans next year to take it further on the road. So that'll be the first time we kind of get out of get out of the uh, the School of Film and Television here to. Uh, uh, with with a different audience, so uh, there will be kind of bits over the summer, and we have a couple of interviews as well, which we want to kind of get out as kind of almost mini episodes. So uh, yeah, there's still plans to uh, to get your cinematologist fix before we come back for season two in September. Fantastic! So. The Cinematologist is recorded live in front of a cinema audience. It is produced by James Chatwin, Marcus Thorne and Michael Tibbins and the design and branding is courtesy of Philly Blumel. Title music is by Nine Inch Nails and the Segway music is by Moby. You can find information on screenings, music licenses and archived episodes at cinematologists.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cinematologists and on Facebook uh, at facebook.com forward slash cinematologists. Thanks also to our guests and to our live audience. Until next time, this has been the Cinematologist Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thank you.